My wife and I like to play this game where we've won the lottery and we are discussing the first thing that we will buy. Usually this happens whenever we're driving somewhere on vacation and as we're driving down the road, we see the signs for lottery. And when it gets up into the hundreds of millions of dollars, we always say, you know, we're going to stop by a ticket. And this invariably leads us to decide what we would do with that money. And usually at the top of my list is a new home that's far away on a secluded piece of property, you know, hundreds of acres in the mountains, far away from civilization of any kind. And since this is pure fantasy, the sky's the limit with, you know, our construction ideas and how we're going to build this house. And it's during these conversations that the stark difference between my idea of a dream home and my wife's come into focus. I'll give you a for example. When we're talking about this dream house that we'd buy, she wants a lot of big windows to check out our fantastic view of the hundreds of acres we'll own. And I tell her that we can't have big windows because we have to think of security. Instead, I suggest that if we have the large picture windows, then we also install those roll-down hurricane-proof metal shutters that cover every window. You've seen them before. Uh, it's like whenever the bank closes and the security, the security walls come down so you can't, you can't access uh, uh, inside the lobby anymore. And I've actually said that in addition to those, I, I would love to have a secret fireman pole hidden somewhere that I could take down to the basement where my insanely tricked out bug out vehicle would be there waiting. And if I had to, I could escape through the hidden door behind the waterfall to take us to safety. Yeah, I know this sounds like something out of Batman, but hey, I won the lottery. So, you know, we can build whatever we want to build, right? Needless to say, these conversations never go anywhere. And no, we haven't won the lottery. And that's probably because we may buy one ticket a year. So I have to take all my defensive ideas and problems and apply them to my current reality house instead of hiring some super secret German engineers who are going to come and build my amazing bunker home in the mountains for me. But you may ask yourself, why do I feel the need for the super bat cave strength security in the first place? Well, for me, I'm trying to guard against trouble. You know, should we see some form of civil unrest? But really, should we be looking at security in a worst case scenario differently? Today on the Prepper Journal, we're going to be talking about home security and how in a grid down scenario, instead of trying to build and secure your own suburban bat cave, we may be wiser to deploy a neighborhood defensive strategy. Hello, everyone. This is Pat Henry. You don't have to live in a bad neighborhood to always want a home that you feel safe in, regardless of the situation outside. Usually this is from the prospect of someone breaking in and stealing what you have, 
or just plain busting down the door to do you harm. A critical goal of prepping is to keep yourself and the people you love as safe as possible in a variety of circumstances. For most of us, for a good portion of our lives, that means our homes. Home is supposed to be our refuge, where we can go for safety away from most of life's problems. That's why the term home invasion conjures up so all sorts of bad ideas in our minds. There are steps we can take to make your home more secure, some more drastic than others. Ideally, these steps would be ones that we could all take to strengthen our home's defenses, but the truth is that most of us, uh, most of our modern home fabrication caters to aesthetics and not strength. We like light and windows too much, and our homes, while they're relatively strong, are mostly built on frames that can be bashed in with a sledgehammer and not much effort. Yes, I know, they have plywood on the outside, some even have brick, but if I can drive my car through your living room wall, it isn't too stout, is it? Our homes, like I already mentioned, are easily broken into with some basic tools, brute force or a little time. Heck, it only takes a rock to bust out a window and people can walk right in. A stiff boot and proper method will work on most doors the first try, and that is if they're even locked in the first place. I think of regular home security problems that people face daily when there are police and electricity and food at the grocery store shelves. And I also think about home security when none of those things are present. So if you have a grid down collapse scenario, your home most likely won't stand up to a couple of determined people for very long if they go unchallenged. It's times like this that unless you have a walled fortress, you need to consider adding some resources to your defense plan. You could hire those super secret German contractors I talked about to start retrofitting your castle with those handy hurricane shutters, metal gates, and start digging a moat around your house. But that's not very practical, is it? It's much wiser to revert to the neighborhood watch on steroids. What is the neighborhood watch on steroids, you ask? You may have heard of the neighbor, neighborhood watch before, and some of you may even know, uh, you may even have this in your neighborhood already. I remember that a home in our neighborhood was broken into several years back when my kids were much smaller, and all our neighbors got together at a meeting to discuss forming a neighborhood watch. Someone had arranged for us all to meet at a local community center, and we had a police officer come in and talk with us briefly about the local crime situation. Uh, you know, what we should and should not do. And we all received small flimsy signs to put in our yard that said, you know, this neighborhood is protected by a neighborhood watch. I think there was one lady who even volunteered to roam the streets in the evenings, but that's about the last I heard of the neighborhood watch program. And once that flimsy sign rusted and faded, it quickly found its way into my trash can. On the other hand, if we have a true collapse, the situation will be much more real and important. If you and your neighbors feel that they need to defend their homes, it's better to join together and combine forces so that you can protect more homes at once. It's also much more likely that several people watching over things will be more of a deterrent than just a single older retiree walking her dog at night. This is another situation where it all depends on the disaster. If you're talking about a late summer storm that drops some trees on power lines and you have the resulting loss of power for a few days, the neighborhood watch on steroids probably doesn't need to get activated. Uh, 
If you have something more long-term and serious like a hurricane that robs power for several weeks, damages homes, or displaces people, that neighborhood watch may be necessary to prevent looting. Thinking more long-term and dire than even a hurricane, if the police are unable to come to your aid, there is widespread looting, theft, panic, and chaos. You will want to already have a plan for keeping your neighborhood safe from intruders. Now, all of your able-bodied neighbors should be on board with joining the neighborhood watch if that happens. The more people you have watching, the safer you will be. But the disaster will dictate what is necessary or prudent to expect in the way of escalation of force. So who are the people you could expect to pose threats to your neighbors in a grid down or without rule of law scenario? I think it depends on the length of the crisis almost completely. If the crisis or disaster is relatively short-lived and some semblance of order is returned, like our neighborhood brushed with robbery, this problem will likely go away. The more prolonged or serious the crisis is, the more desperate or bold the people will become. Looters. This will be the first wave and it's completely normal to see people looting over just about any event these days. There was looting in Ferguson after the riots. Uh, there was, uh, you know, there's looting after uh, many sports games. But the, the looting I'm referring to would be more like what we see after events like hurricanes. Remember Hurricane Sandy, where they found people rummaging through homes that had been evacuated due to the alerts? So they evacuated, uh, they evacuated all the homes because the hurricane was coming. And then people immediately right after the hurricane came in and started looting. With nobody there to stop them, these opportunists simply had their run of many homes. I even read a report that looters would dress up as utility workers so they could look legitimate. And that might have only been rumors, but if it, if it wasn't, it's a great idea. Even if it was, I can see people trying it. So, and besides looters, you could have desperate people, nomads. After the looters have gone, or when the subject of what people are looking for turns to necessities instead of flat screen TVs and, and branded merchandise, people displaced from their homes will be the next up. We talk about the Golden Horde who have, have moved out of the major cities into surrounding communities for safety or necessity. And I think this is something we could easily see with the right disaster. Millions of people from New York alone could leave the city if they had some form of terrorist attack or outbreak. And when the people are forced to flee so fast they can't take any supplies, they will be left with what's on their backs and they'll be coming for what you may have in your home. Even if you had a great bug out bag, how much food are you taking with you in that kind of situation? What will you do when the food is gone but the emergency isn't over yet? These people will be looking for food and supplies and they may be walking through your neighborhood. Next, bands of criminals. I think this is only really, well, I think it's primarily likely in only the most severe form of disaster after we've had a long absence of law and order. Groups of thugs will join for survival, and once they do, they'll start roaming outward to gain the same thing that others will be looking for. And those are items that they need or want in order to live. If you are still in your home and you haven't bugged out to your secret walled bat cave somewhere with rolling metal shutters, they could find your neighborhood. 
These people pose the greatest threat, in my opinion, because they will most likely be armed and will have experience with assaulting homes and people. This will be a larger organized group that has survived long enough to, to know a thing or two and will have the will and require the most force and tactics to deal with effectively. Long ago, there was no such thing as police officers who roamed around in their cars connected by radio and dispatchers who monitor a central 911 system. If trouble broke out, you and your family were on your own. You may have been able to rely on neighbors if they lived close enough, but the defense of your property was a personal responsibility. Flash forward to today, and for a whole host of reasons, our society has largely abdicated this responsibility to law enforcement. While there are many noble police officers out there, they're woefully outnumbered when it comes to people. So while they may arrive in time to help, usually the police arrive after the drama has occurred and they try to sort out the players as best as they can. This is not ideal when our society is functioning as it should be. A police presence could be non-existent in a crisis or a disaster, and it will be back to you and possibly your neighbors to defend your village or your neighborhood. Again, I'm not talking about some snow that keeps people at home. I'm talking about chaos, where for whatever reason, law enforcement is unable to get to you, much less protect you, and you have bad people who are trying to get in. For the rest of this episode, I'm going to assume a national disaster that has rendered our nation in a crisis where there is no rule of law. Your neighborhood could be configured in all types of ways, depending on where you live. In a larger city, we might have boundaries that are simply streets. Your neighborhood might run a certain number of blocks ending at a river or uh, a highway. It could be that your neighborhood is the traditional suburban subdivision complete with a sign out front. You could live in a gated community or your neighborhood might just be a dozen homes in the country. Before you enact a plan to defend your neighborhood, it helps to think about a few things first. First, understand the enemy. Who are you defending your neighborhood from? What kinds of threats could you expect to encounter? Again, we're, gonna, we're not going to consider a professional military force is coming to attack you and take you out of your house. We will say that the enemy could be lone individuals or gangs who range from simply just hungry and desperate to organized and violent. Depending on your location and the duration of the event, you may encounter all types of people. First, use situational awareness. This will be key to any defense, and that is to know what you are protecting and who is trying to get in. The size of your defensive team will dictate how much area you can realistically try to secure, but there are force multipliers, obviously, and we'll get to those uh, in a little bit. But you have to know your neighborhood better than anyone so that you can model your defensive strategies where you will have the most advantage. One thing I like to do for my neighborhood is drawing out the boundaries. You may only be able to secure a couple of streets or even one street, and it'll help to draw out the streets, identifying access areas, choke points, natural cover, and the assets you hope to control. Uh, this could just be, you know, circling the wagons and, and just drawing a perimeter around, you know, your neighbor's homes. Some resources you can use now are websites like mytopo.com, and that will allow you to order a detailed topographic map of your entire area or something like scribblemaps.com. That will allow you to create your own maps and add symbols. Naturally, these would need to be taken care of before any crisis prevents you from accessing computers or the internet, although it's not 
totally necessary. People were drawing up plans well before the internet. So use your imagination. You have defender's advantages. I mentioned before that virtually none of us have a walled compound, so it isn't like we can march along the wall and shine spotlights down on anyone trying to access our neighborhood like we're guards at some type of Alcatraz Island. You'll have to use the advantages you do have, though, to give you and the rest of your neighborhood defenders the upper hand. If someone does come into your neighborhood, you will be able to rely on your strengths. What strengths do we have? Well, you'll be able to fight from cover and to create fortified positions. Again, this is assuming an SHTF type of scenario. What can you use? Well, depending on the disaster, uh, granted, you wouldn't want to do all of these things unless it was you know, pretty serious. But if the disaster was serious enough, you could roll cars into position as roadblocks. You could you know, put refrigerators or large appliances. You can use stones that used to be used in your garden. For if this was a real disaster, I'd be looking to build my own foxholes and augment those with sandbags so I had a, a fighting position. Digging a hole is free, and a lot of dirt makes great cover. It'll protect you from, uh, protect you from a, a lot of different things if you, if you do it right. With planning and enough resources, the routes into your neighborhood that you would want to defend can easily be set up to be highly defensible. You have the home field advantage. You know your neighborhood and where everything is. You will also know where your partners are with rifles trained on the bad guys. Communication will augment this, but we'll get into that later as well. You will know where the paths through the woods go, where the fences are opened, or where special defensive devices meant to injure or slow the enemy are hidden. Anyone coming into your neighborhood is not going to know everything that you've set up. Next, you have the ability to prepare. Anyone who is intent on coming into your neighborhood will only be able to observe from the outside what is going on, provided you don't have patrols outside of your area watching for this behavior. You can set up defensive positions, deploy obstacles to prevent unwanted vehicle traffic, and reinforce as you go along. If this is a gang who is somewhat organized, they could have experience offensively, but they will not have had as much time as you to prepare your neighborhood to be defended against them. Now, I know everyone may be thinking of a Walking Dead kind of scenario where the bad guys have, you know, infiltrated your community and they know all of your plans and there's no hope of, of uh, defending yourself against some unknown bad guy. Well, yeah, maybe technically that could be possible, but life is not the Walking Dead. So you have to take that with a little grain of salt. Keep everyone on the same page. Effective communications are important. Simple radio communication is a huge force multiplier in a grid-down scenario. Assuming electronics work, just having a few radios on hand will enable you and the rest of your team to stay in constant contact and be aware of everything that is happening around your area that you're trying to secure. Most of you probably have radios that you use for camping or hiking if you have small children, even for play. I purchased a few of those Motorola radios to be used for cases just like this when I need to stay in contact with my home and I'm not traveling too far away. And, and when I say not too far away, I mean very close. Another use was hunting so I could stay in contact with my hunting buddy out in the woods where cell coverage was non-existent. Midland seems to be the big player in radios like this, and they have a lot of models that are geared towards hunters. We've used these radios for all sorts of activities, and they work great for what they're designed to do. 
One thing to note is that almost all the radios I've seen will say something like they have a 20 or a 50 mile range. And there's no way you will ever get that much distance from one of these radios. You'll be very lucky to get two or three miles. And that's assuming you don't have a lot of terrain interference. These radios are designed for line of sight. So for more range, you would want to potentially move to ham radio. But that's a much more complicated and involved topic. And that's out of the scope of this episode. For the purposes I'm talking about here, neighborhood security, these little these little small handheld radios are a perfect option that'll work in most cases. A nice addition is to add an earpiece and a microphone attachment uh, that has a push to talk microphone on it. And this will allow you to hear the radio communications in private instead of just, you know, broadcast over the air. If you have that earpiece in, you can hear what's going on, on the radio, but someone around you can't hear what's going on in the radio which will be another huge benefit for roving patrols, guard posts, or simply maintaining some form of stealth. Newer models have upwards of 50 channels, so you can take simple steps to talk relatively securely, uh, but these radios are not encrypted by any stretch, so anyone who has a pair of these radios can listen in on the same channel as you are. These radios are on a public band. Uh, if someone else is on the same channel within range, they're going to be able to hear exactly what you're saying, just like any radio. It's possible to scan for communication on all channels, but this is probably not something you have to be too concerned with, assuming that you don't have, again, the evil guy from Walking Dead coming to, to take you away. Keeping radio discipline, changing your frequencies often, and having different channels will make it much harder for people to hear what you're saying. This isn't foolproof, and I understand that. So before anyone sends me emails saying how easy it is to hear someone talking, I know this is just... Uh, giving people who are looking for a plan to communicate uh, a way to do that. It's not foolproof, but if you have radios and the people coming in do not have radios, you're going to have an advantage. I'd keep conversations to minimum. Use code words if you have to. If you have an enemy group scanning radios and taking that many de deliberate steps to monitor you and spy on you, then you're going to be in for a big fight anyway. At that point... Military tactics are likely going to be your only saving grace. Next, make them work for it. I said earlier that we don't live in walled compounds. Each neighborhood in America has its own challenges with preventing access, but there are steps you can take to slow people down or halt vehicle traffic entirely. You may not be able to stop them from walking through the woods, but you could prevent them from driving up in a U-Haul or speeding their way in past some kind of security checkpoint you have planned. I walk through my neighborhood frequently. Each time I go on my, I call it my neighborhood recon, I'm looking at, among other things, the best places to set up roadblocks. I know that sounds kind of crazy, doesn't it? Well, I don't do it every time, but I've done it before. In order to take advantage of the terrain, you would want to set roadblocks up to stop vehicles that would prevent them from coming in or around or over the obstacle. Where I live, we have lots of trees that I could easily cover the entire road and then some. The only thing we'd have to do is chop down the tree and then there you go, roadblock. That limits us when it comes to getting out though and it'd be more of a worst case scenario precaution, I think. A different strategy, and again, this is not something that you know one guy is easily gonna be able to do, 
But with trees like this, you could use two or more, preferably three trees to create a mini maze that any approaching car would need to slow down to a crawl to make it through. Now, you'd have to drop three trees, you know, one from the left side, one from the right side and one from the left side and cut them so that the car could actually make it through the trees, but they would just be going very slow. Uh, you may have seen checkpoints set up at military bases that look like this, where your car can come in, but you have to go around an obstacle and very slowly go around another obstacle. And this is very intentional. This would allow you to still get out with a vehicle and it would let people in, but it would slow someone down who was trying to get in. Like if they were trying to charge into your neighborhood, they'd have to slow down. No way they can make it through that barricade going very fast. And if they did, they could be engaged with small arms fire if the threat was intent on getting in. And, and really, as a neighborhood, you had decided that deadly force was required. Uh, again, I'm making some assumptions here uh, for the purposes of this hypothetical scenario. You could easily block several roads in short order with this tree dropping strategy. But again, that's going to work better in a, a more rural uh, part of the U.S. that actually has trees. If you're living in a city, you're not going to be able to drop trees anywhere. Uh, if you're living out in the desert, you probably don't have any trees anyway. Your neighborhood uh, is going to dictate what you can do. Uh, you can do a similar thing within the city, though, uh, but you probably have to use big vehicles and, you know, even, you know, take them off their take them off their wheels so that they uh, they couldn't put, be pushed out of the way very easily. What about people walking through the woods? Uh, this is when roving patrols and multiple observation posts would be a good idea, but it's not always possible. It really comes down to how many people can watch these locations for you. If you don't have enough people, you'll have to contract your perimeter, you, you know, contract it uh, to something you can manage with the available people you have. Another, another thing to consider is that you might have five people, but they can't watch all the time every day. You'll just burn people out. So you'll have to have shifts and that will reduce the number of people that, that you have at any one time. You know, another option would be simple trip flares. And these would work at night to alert you that someone has entered your perimeter. Again, these are great ideas, but they have their drawbacks too. Like it only works uh, for a trip flare like that is if you have someone watching for it. If everybody's asleep, that trip flare is not going to help you. You can also purchase chem light versions that are real, relatively quiet uh, trip warning devices. And I'll, I'll add links to these products in my show notes. Once you have all the roads blocked, that just eliminates vehicles, assuming they don't drive around your roadblock. You still have to manage any traffic coming to your roadblocks. And ideally, this would be an area where people were posted on guard, could maintain control of the traffic while still keeping... Uh, themselves safe from incoming rounds at the same time. In a grid down scenario like this, the best thing to stop bullets is mass. Well, that's the best thing to stop bullets always. Uh, but not many of us will have the ability to build or construct concrete pillboxes in our neighborhoods. Uh, I think that the prepper who wants to have a plan but doesn't necessarily need to build a bunker, a simple foxhole makes a great uh, idea. It's been used forever. Uh, the design is straightforward and only requires a shovel. As an added bonus, you could add sandbags to the top and sides, but a well-built foxhole should protect you from any rounds that you could expect from someone, you know, carrying a rifle. What about, what about those big trees you dropped on the road? Sure, those could work too. A uh, big enough tree is going to stop any bullet, but that 
That only gives you protection from the front, and it could also be used uh, by the bad guys as protection. If they get down behind your trees, you can't shoot them through the trees either. So how many positions would you need? Again, it comes down to what you can supply with resources, but I think a minimum of one position at each entryway. So if you lived on, let's say you just lived on a, a straight street, and again, this is grid down hypothetical you know, scenario, you could block two ends of the street uh, with, you know, the people that you have to do that. And this would this would give you uh, protection from vehicles coming into or out of uh, of that street. If the scenario really descended into anarchy, you could also use you could use climbing stands, deer hunting climbing stands. Uh, you could use somebody's treehouse. Uh, you could construct pits to trap people who made it through your outer perimeter. And, and these, uh, of course, these aren't without risk also, but um, you want to do anything you can to slow people, slow people down. If all else fails, and I said this before in my article on home fortification, you need to have a plan B. You can easily be overrun by superior numbers. Or if they get to the upper, if they get the upper hand in some way, if they sneak in and, and you don't know about it, you need to have a fallback position and a rally point somewhere away from your location. This is this is military tactics 101. No one ever plans to hold a defensive position forever. There always has to be a plan to fall back and, and regroup if you get overrun. This is another great use of the radios because if you do have to leave. Everyone in your group needs to know about that and know what the plan is. And whenever they receive word that, you know, we're evacuating, they can move quickly and get out of the way. Continuing on, what do you need? Um, a few people, uh, when I wrote about this on the blog, they pointed out that to defend a neighborhood, you would need people and lots of them. And I agree, the more people you have, the more you will be able to defend your neighborhood. I also agree that the more people you have, the more resources you'll be able to pull. But there are a couple of questions. How do you get these people in the first place? And how do you convince them that it's in their best interest to chip in, so to speak, to help protect the neighborhood? Do you run around now like Chicken Little talking about the impending doom and risk alienating everyone? This is a tricky issue, I think, because I don't believe that too many people can convince their neighbors that because of, insert your favorite, you know, grid down threat here, we need to band together now to plan and prepare and defend our neighborhood. Now, I know that some of you have survival groups already, and some even have retreats and plans to bug out to the woods when the SHTF. You train together every weekend and you work on getting your cabin ready with supplies, skills, training, and weapons practice. You guys are the exception. The overwhelming majority of people who call themselves preppers keep to themselves. And you might have a buddy or two, but no retreat, no constitution governing how your survival group will function once the grid goes down. Even if you did, these aren't your neighbors. I know there are exceptions, but I would bet money that most preppers are on their own to a large extent. Now add the rest of the world in there who isn't prepping at all, and you have a ton of people who will not actively be ready for anything like this. They don't see a threat, don't care even if they do, and you won't convince them now without jeopardizing your own security. So what can you do? Something I learned in the Army applies here, and that's hurry up and wait. Wait. 
Yes, I think in this instance, you would need to wait until something happens that is real, unfortunately. It would need to be something that started affecting people before they would understand and believe anything you said. I believe that if we had a crisis like uh, like I've described before, you would have many more people who only then would be able to see the rationale behind your words. Does that mean you have to live like a hermit until something bad actually does happen? No, it certainly doesn't mean you should not try and help and encourage others to prepare for disasters if the opportunity arises. I think what is going to be useful is getting to know your neighbors, but focus on knowing them and not converting them to preppers and drawing up a neighborhood defense plan. Get to know them as people now before anything bad happens. You want to have relationships with people first before you find yourself needing to place your trust in them. It may be that in the course of getting to know your neighbors, you may find out they have similar thoughts and concerns as you. This is useful information, but remember to think about OPSEC when sharing your thoughts and your preps. A little discretion now could save you later. If you find after a lot of time that you really do have shared values, thoughts, preps, then that person might be a great choice to have some sort of survival group with. I just wouldn't lead the neighborhood defense plan or offer up anything to them about how the sky is falling. Now, while you're waiting for a reason to rally your forces, should you sit idly by not doing anything? No. I think each individual can continue to make preparations for disasters just like this so that you are prepared in the eventuality that something does happen. Uh, I'm going to talk about some items that you can prepare uh, or that you can prepare for now or prepare with now. And uh, the great thing about these items is that every single one of them has other uses, or at least most of them. So it's not like you're only buying supplies for the grid down collapse that I've been talking about. And you may be able to help a neighbor through some issue while the grid is still up and peachy using these items. So uh, what are some items that can help you with your neighborhood watch on steroids plan? I think there's some logical weapons and some supply considerations that would give you an upper hand if you were faced with a situation where you're trying to defend your neighborhood. Again, our hypothetical scenario here is that there's been a national disaster, it's rendered our nation in a crisis, and there is no local rule of law. We'll start with uh, the easy one, weapons and ammo. Within reason, I say within reason because there are a lot of preppers who just buy thousands of rounds and ammo of ammo every month and they just stock it away and they don't buy anything else. I think there are several weapon options that make sense for general home defense, hunting, and even grid down disasters. I wrote a whole article about this and I'll link to it in the show notes, but it's my top five firearms you need to get your hands on now. And I explain what, what they are and I give my reasons for each. I don't think you need an arsenal, but this assortment that I mentioned in that article should help you do just about anything you need. Now, if it comes to neighborhood defense, there's some options that are better than other. In my opinion, a battle rifle like an AR-15 or an AK-47 would be my first choice primarily for range and effectiveness. Just about any good hunting rifle could pull double duty as a sharpshooter weapon by someone in an Overwatch role provided they were a good shot. So it doesn't have to be an, an AK-47. It could be it could be a 270 or a 30-06 or a, a 300. All of these are, you know, typical hunting rifles and they can be relatively easily procured. Probably don't want to rely on pistols or shotguns though, because their range and accuracy is limited. 
it's more limited than, uh, you know, like a dedicated battle rifle or even a hunting rifle. Those are better than nothing, though. So if that's all you have, that's what you have. A 22 rifle, I, I know it can kill people. It would not be my choice for a defensive weapon. Uh, and I know some of those, some others will disagree with me. However, it can be used to kill people. I, I just, I, that would not be the first thing I go with. And whatever you get, make sure you have more than one box of ammo for each two. And my dad has, uh, he has a couple of pistols uh, that he got um, relatively recently. And um, my dad just doesn't see the need to have more than a box of ammo for each pistol. Uh, he's only concerned with, you know, someone breaking into the house and he, he might shoot, you know, one, one round and that'll be it. Almost any prepper you can think of who, who believes that firearms are important is going to want to have more than one box of ammo. Um, I've got an article that I'll link to in the show notes with my minimum ammo counts. Okay. Now this is, this is a best case scenario. Um, I've also got an ammo uh, inventory spreadsheet that you can download to help keep track of the ammo you have. Um, I know that right now it's really difficult with the price and scarcity of ammo. It's just crazy. Um, for now, I would recommend <laughs> you change this strategy a little bit and make sure you do have at least one box, uh, but be very careful with, you know, spending all your money on ammo right now. Hopefully the prices will come back down or at least monitor the prices so that you're not just spending a ridiculous amount of money on ammo. It's, it's a, uh, probably 10 times more than it used to be right now. So that's ammo. What about all the different guns you have? Do you need 50 guns? No, I don't think so. But there's nothing wrong with that if you do, as long as you have all your other bases covered first. So things like food, uh, long-term food storage, you know, water, first aid and sanitation, all these things need to be taken care of before you go and buy, you know, 500 guns. Because it doesn't matter how many guns you have if uh, you die, you know, the first time you get cut from an infection. Uh, it doesn't matter how many guns you have or how, how much ammo you have if you starve to death uh, because your family didn't uh, stock up any food. So that's weapons and, and ammo. Next is radio communications. Radios are a great equalizer that I discussed, you know, just before in this episode. You can relatively cheaply provide communication options to your entire group just by purchasing some good radios. Now, these can be the more cheaper uh, FMRS radios. Uh, you see them at Walmart, you know, Tractor Supply, any any place where, um, you know, home electronics are sold, you can get these radios. Uh, another good option would be... Um, G, uh, GMRS radios have a little bit better range. You're supposed to have a license for these, but nobody I know has a license for those, so I wouldn't even worry about it. And if the grid goes down, no one's going to come asking you for a license. So um, they make a better option to me than ham radios, just because ham radios are so technical and you really do need to understand what you're doing with ham radios before you can just pick one up and start talking. Even a CB is going to be better than nothing. Food. 
uh, you know, food. What is food doing on the supply list? Well, you want to make sure that you have enough to feed everyone in your home, at least, so that you don't have to leave your little protective enclave. Uh, you know, if if you have to keep going outside, you reduce the number of people that are there to defend your, your home. So by having food supply, you're eliminating one reason people will be wandering around if we do have an economic collapse. Uh, another one is binoculars. Get a decent pair of binoculars to see what's going or coming your way. Yes, you could use a rifle scope, uh, although don't necessarily want to be pointing a rifle every time. You just want to see what's far away from you. Um, they have they make good binoculars that will not cost you an arm and a leg. They also make great binoculars that are very expensive. You don't need that. Uh, a fifty buck pair of binoculars is going to be great for what you're looking for. Uh, trip flares. It's probably more accurate to call this intrusion detection. Um, and there are a couple of options I came across that are not pyrotechnic, so there's no flare necessarily. Uh, one is a, an option that's basically like a mousetrap that breaks a chem stick. Uh, so whenever the trip goes off, breaks the chem stick, and then you see the glow. This is going to require you to obviously be watching for the glow. It's only going to work at night really well. And... Um, you have to be set up so that you can see them. Another option I've seen uses a CO2 cartridge, you know, creates a noise. And then lastly, there's another one that uses uh, 22 shells, 22 shells or 22 blanks that will actually be an audible noise. And I'll put links to all these in the show notes too. In terms of tools, chainsaws are an incredible tool. I went for years without having one. I relied on uh, my neighbors or my, um, you know, like my father-in-law had a chainsaw. I never had one. Finally, I broke down and I got myself a, a little, a little chainsaw that um, it didn't cost an arm and a leg. Uh, it's not the biggest farm duty chainsaw, but it is great. Um, chainsaws make the work of cutting down trees so much easier. Yes, you can do this with an ax, but you don't want to. Um, if you live in a city, a chainsaw might not get much use, but out in the country, any place that has trees in it, uh, you're going to want a chainsaw. Uh, I, and I use these uh, maybe once a year, you know, limbing trees or, you know, chopping down something that or, uh, that has fallen. Or if my, my buddy needs a hand, you know, uh, chopping up a, a tree that fell on his property, you know, I'll use that too. Um, you don't want to get an electric chainsaw because if there's no power, that electric chainsaw is useless. Same thing with a rechargeable one. Uh, if there's no power, you can use it one time, but then that's it. Shovels. A good selection of regular hand tools uh, is, is going to come in handy. So if you do not have good yard tools, this is something you want to take care of. Uh, you don't need a whole bunch of shovels. You certainly don't need more than one or two maybe, but make sure you get a good, decent shovel. You buy it once. You don't have to buy one ever again. Uh, these are good for all sorts of things, you know, working in the garden, digging your defensive positions. Uh, if, if it's really bad, you might have to dig sanitation trenches to keep everyone from getting sick. Uh, along with those tools, you're going to want work gloves and heavy duty boots. Uh, I've talked before about this and, um, a lot of people and even myself, I'm ashamed to say sometimes in the summer, uh, run around in flip flops. Um, but I do have multiple pairs of boots uh, that if I need to, I can strap those on. Just be prepared to 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 work 
you know, much more, you know, hard, um, sturdy pair of boots. I've got hiking boots and I've got, you know, just things like regular work boots. So if I'm working around in the yard, I don't have my hiking boots on, although they, those work around the yard too. Um, you might want to have some sturdier pants. Carhartt makes, uh, sturdier pants. There's also a lot of, you know, off-brand, um, uh, work pants, just something that's a little bit more, that's going to stand up, you know, better to hard, hard abuse than your, you know, your favorite blue jeans or, you know, like I've got some, some camping pants that are more nylon. Um, and I, these are great for, you know, walking around, but I don't want to, uh, really put a lot of, uh, abuse on these cause they'll fall apart. Uh, same thing goes for cold weather gear and rain gear. Um, most of the rain gear you see now, uh, and I, and I've, I'm guilty of it too. I'm paying $90 for a, a North face rain jacket that really, it, it's not a good raincoat. It's very thin. Uh, I mean, it's really good for just keeping you out, you know, some drizzle, but you want some, some high quality, you know, cold weather gear and rain gear, or at least make sure you have the layers so that if you're going to be outside all the time, if there's a, a grid down type of environment where you're going to have to be outside working and pulling security, you want to make sure you have clothes for that kind of environment. Uh, sandbags. Sandbags are relatively cheap. You can buy them now and put them in your shed and not worry about them until you need them. Um, I've, I found a place before where you can buy them for 36, 36 cents each. Uh, I think I got 500 and, um, you know, they're just sitting in my shed waiting for me to use them. Uh, sandbags can be used to secure your home from a flood. Um, you know, they can also be used to, you know, build defensive positions out of, uh, as I talked about before. Not one of the things that people usually um, stock. And I, I don't want to advocate, you know, storing a lot of gear that's not going to be used. But, you know, sandbags are one of those things that um, if you need them, you're going to wish you had them. Power. So you need a source of power to recharge those radios that you purchased as well as all sorts of other things. So you can, you can purchase uh, small solar chargers from a lot of places, or you can buy a four panel, you know, solar charging system. You're going to want to have a way to charge those electronics that you, uh, you count on. You may have weapons lights for your, uh, for your rifles. You may have headlamps, you may have radios, all these things are, you're going to want to have batteries for, or a way to recharge batteries. Um, and this is going to be key in a grid down uh, scenario. You don't want to run a generator if you can avoid it. Uh, and even if you do, gas is going to run out eventually in the scenario I'm talking about. Uh, you don't want the noise of a generator running if you're trying to keep your neighborhood safe and keep people away from you. Uh, concertina or bar barbed wire. Barbed wire is easier to get. Concertina is a little bit uh, uh, more extreme. It's also called razor wire. This is what you see at the top of prison fences. Uh, I wouldn't even want to touch this without specialized gloves, but it is a great deterrent. Um, traditional barbed wire is much easier to use and it won't slice you wide open, uh, but you can use this for, um, creating trip traps. Uh, you can, you know, use it on your fence, obviously, you know, barbed wire is a, a, a good option. Last up, night vision. Probably the single most important thing you can buy that almost nobody has is night vision. I, I don't own any night vision goggles, but I recognize their extreme utility. 
when it comes to force multipliers, there aren't too many that are higher on the list than being able to see your enemy in pitch black darkness, but they're not practical for everyday use in any capacity. These are designed for only one reason, and they're very pricey. This will be one of my last purchases unless I win that lottery I was talking about. But if money was no object, I would have a pair or two. You can offset the cost by purchasing a weapon scope with night vision, but then you can only use it if your weapon is up. Uh, this episode is simply thoughts and suggestions from one man regarding a hypothetical event in our country that virtually no one has ever lived through. Yes, this has happened before in history, uh, certainly in not too distant history in other countries. These are just my ideas based upon reflections I've had when I consider potential realities for our country with our current society. That doesn't mean they will ever come to pass. It also doesn't mean that what works for one person will work for everyone. I try to get my ideas and reasoning behind these ideas, and if none of that works for you, no big deal. The key is to start thinking about how you would solve this problem yourself with your resources and limitations that will most likely be different than mine. I believe the simple act of thinking about a scenario like this could give you an advantage if you ever find yourself in a situation where you're faced with the prospect of defending your home or neighborhood from people in a without rule of law scenario. If you don't believe that would ever happen, this episode probably doesn't do anything for you. There are many preppers, actually a strong majority that do believe some event could cause a situation just like this. Hopefully this episode was helpful. Uh, if nothing else, it gave you something to think about. I try to do that with everything I write on theprepperjournal.com. Uh, hopefully we were able to give you some ideas about how you could start thinking about neighborhood defense. And above all, I hope that none of us has to ever worry about this in our future. Thanks everyone. Stay safe.